Would you open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 1. If you're visiting, my name is Darren, and I am one of the pastors here. And uh, we're so glad that you're here. I'm actually going to skip ahead to uh, verse 11 just for the sake of time and based on what I learned about from first service about how, <laughs> how little time I had. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. He's talking to a group of people who were suffering, who were, in fact, we, in First, Corinthians, or First Thessalonians 1, he says, you, you received the gospel in a time of extreme suffering with joy. And he's saying, hey, one of the ways to encourage each other is to remind you, and I'm reminding you today, Jesus is returning. He's reminding them that in 1 Thessalonians. And because of that, you can encourage one another, build each other up. And that's what we've been talking about these past few weeks is building each other up, building ourselves up, rise up and build. Now, verse 12, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. In verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them at all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil, and may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us, Greet all of God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. That was God's word. Thank you for your, your word for us. And Lord, I pray that today that it will be a lamp for us and a light. I pray that we will take a moment to disconnect from the the world around us and connect to you. Just a reminder, Lord, that our, (laughs) our social networks can wait. Our text messages can wait. We just want to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Has anybody heard of, I mentioned him last week briefly, but Sebastian Younger, he's an author. He wrote a novel called The Perfect Storm. Remember that novel? Maybe you saw the movie, The Perfect Storm. Sebastian Younger is actually known for more than just his uh, writing. He uh, was before and, and for long after that novel, a war correspondent. And as a war correspondent, he spent lots of time in the trenches with, uh, with troops on the front lines of battle. And just out of curiosity, how many in here are veterans or even maybe currently serving? I just wanted to kind of get a read on where we are. Maybe seen some action, seen some play. Thank you. 
That is the right response. Sebastian's point was he, he was, so he studied a lot. He, he wrote this, uh, he wrote a book called Tribe. And if you're looking for a book that's a great uh, short read, but is punchy, just full of stuff, Tribe is a great book. But he based it on an article he wrote for uh, Vanity Fair. And I'm sure this room is full of people that subscribe to Vanity Fair. So you probably already read this. <laughs> Sebastian's point, now this, keep in mind, this guy is an atheist, uh, unapologetic atheist. Uh, and an anthropologist by trade. And so that's, he was going into the war and he was studying to figure out why, in, for the first time in history, do we have more PTSD than we've ever had in the history of war. And, and so what he was coming back saying that the numbers don't hold up, that of the people that actually are, are getting uh, treatment for PTSD from uh, the VA hospital, that one, I think it's one in eight or one in 10, actually never saw battle on the front lines. They never saw the kinds of things that should have caused it. Secondly, he's saying that PTSD is a thing, but it isn't a long-term thing for most people. And he, he proves the research through rape victims, people that have experienced trauma in their lives, that they do have a PTSD experience, but for the most part, those people will go on to live lives where they overcome those symptoms. He says on the one hand, there, are, there is a 10%, a number of those that actually had psychological troubles before that actually exacerbate it and so that that continues. So that is, there is a good number, a 10, 20% of them that experience it on an ongoing basis. He goes on to say that, look, because the VA doing what we should do, which is get people you know, treated and seen, we're rushing people through. So there's probably about a 10% of people that were just gaming the system. That's any system. But what about the rest? That's what he was trying to figure out. These are people that have actual symptoms that are actually experienced depression and a high rate of suicide, but they don't have the traditional PTSD. Why is that? And this is what he wrote in this article uh, in Vanity Fair. He's talking about soldiers coming home from the battlefield today. They're completely reliant on one another for support. Let me throw that up there. Completely reliant on one another for support, comfort, and defense, and they share a group identity that most would risk their lives for. Their personal interest is subsumed into group interest because personal survival is not possible without group survival. From, my, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, keeping in mind he's an atheist and an anthropologist, I would challenge and say he's, what he's saying was evolution. This is how God wired you from the start in community, in our image, he created them. In community, he created them. This is how we were wired. This is just an anthropologist's way of trying to figure out how anybody but God could have done this. It's not all surprising that many soldiers respond to combat in positive ways and miss it when it's gone. And if you've, anybody that you know that has been a part of that journey right now, that I've friends that are uh, Marines that are recently home that are having a hard time. They wanna go back, they, they miss the brotherhood, and this is what he says, this is why. A modern soldier returning from combat goes from the kind of close-knit situation that humans evolved, I would say, are created for into a society where most people work outside the home. Children are educated by strangers. Families are isolated from wider communities. Personal gain almost completely eclipses collective good, and people sleep alone or with a partner, even if he or she is in a family that is not the same as belonging to a large, self-sufficient group that shares and experiences almost everything collectively. Whatever, this is what he says, whatever the technological advances of modern society, and they're nearly miraculous, 
The individual lifestyles that those technologies spawn, listen to this, may be deeply brutalizing to the human spirit. Here's what he's saying. Those that are coming home are suffering from and dying from not just PTSD, but they're dying from a society that was not wired in the way that they were wired to be created or to to exist. We were created to exist in a society where it's close-knit and together. And we live in a society where we all have our own, most people in here probably have your own home. You may or may not know your neighbors. You may or may not know even what they look like because that's how our lives are. You're going to work at a place where you know people, kind of, but, but there isn't the kind of close-knit society that these soldiers existed with and lived for and fought alongside of on the front lines. And they're, all they're saying is they're coming home and they're dying of loneliness. And you might think that's hyperbolic, but Brene Brown, in a, uh, I think it was Fast Company article, just a couple days ago, she talks about that our problem in America is way, way worse than our political divides. There's a study that was shown that in 1976, that of the counties that covered a political candidate for that presidential election, follow me on this, see if you can smell what I'm stepping in. In that year, the counties that won by a landslide for for either candidate, there was only 25% of the counties that carried a a candidate by a landslide, 80% or more. Last year, in 2016, 80% of the counties in America gave their candidate a win by by a landslide, one or the other. If you live in Williamson County, you know who the candidate won by a landslide here, right? If you live in Ohio, you know that probably a county there might have carried the other candidate by. But what the point was is she's saying that in a world right now that is actually, we're unified around political ideals, around people that think and act the way that we do, you would think that we were more comforted and close than we've ever been before but she is saying that her research is showing it is the exact opposite of that. And the reason that I say that they're dying of loneliness, this is what she, uh, in the research that she has done from her uh, her university, uh, she says that, where's that at? Here it is, 2015 meta-analysis of studies on loneliness, okay, which researchers found the following. Living with air pollution, okay, increases your odds of dying early by 5%. Living with obesity, 20%. Excessive drinking, 30%. Living with loneliness, it increases our odds of dying early by 45%. This is a serious thing. I, uh, I had a journey a while back with a guy uh, named Chip Dodd. I've referred to him a couple times in the last few weeks. But one of the things that Chip talks about is that uh, he has a book called Voice of the Heart. I highly recommend it. Uh, that there are, he says there's eight feelings. I know people say there's more or less, whatever. But for me, this was brand new information that your feelings weren't bad. Like this was brand new information. I, I thought that, you know, uh, the, the, how is the scripture goes, uh, or actually it wasn't even a scripture, we thought it was a scripture, that we don't go by how we feel, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Saying that, however I feel is irrelevant because God says this. Now, the inadvertent thing was that we, we don't have feelings and I shouldn't feel feelings with them because those are, uh, uh, those are holding me back. Now, in fairness, every category of feeling that he has, there is an unhealthy side that can hold you back, but there is a healthy side. I talked about it last week, that a healthy form of anger is called passion, and the reason that we have, uh, the project we have in Haiti today is because it made me mad that they were being treated unjustly, 
There is a righteous anger. But in this week with Chip, we had to sit um, in a room in a circle, me and a bunch of pastors, and we looked at this sheet of paper on the floor, and you would uh, check in. You'd say, this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, and you could feel more than one at the same time. You know that you'd be angry and you could be scared. You could be sad. You could be glad. And the, the first morning, you know, Brian, you would appreciate this. I looked at that piece of paper and I had no idea. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know like that's normal, whatever. And so as the week went on, I started getting better at it. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's what that is. Oh, that's what that feeling, that's what that is. That's a feeling. What is, what is this salty discharge coming from my eye? I don't, uh, I, about Thursday of the week, I'm looking down and uh, I'm looking at the one that I never, the whole week, we checked in three or four times a day and I never said this one, I never said the word uh, lonely before. And he, uh, he said that day, I was like, I wonder... He said, you know, the one that you, if, if you're new at this, the one that you never say is probably the one that you are feeling the most and you've just become so normal and so used to it, you don't even know it. And it was the first time I looked at that piece of paper and thought, I'm lonely. I am surrounded by people. My entire life is about people. But I was reminded even when, my, when I first told my wife, I think God wants me to be a pastor, and she laughed and said, you don't even like people, how could you be a pastor? <laughs> and what she was recognizing was my whole day was about people. I'm, I'm talking to promoters, I'm talking to artists, and by the time I got home, it'd be like if you're serving coffee at Starbucks, the last thing you wanna do when you get home is make coffee for somebody. So that, I thought that's what it was, but as I began to grow and realize, oh, that's me that I'm, surround, I'm caught in the thick of thin, surrounded by people and all alone. And that was an interesting journey for me. And as I look at this passage, what Paul is saying here, he's talking to a community that's suffering and that's desperate, but they weren't alone, they were together. And he gives us a glimpse of what a community could look like, a Jesus community, in these few verses. And I think that we live in a society that is set up to fail this. Now, if you go with me to Haiti, you are more than welcome to. You will see that they don't experience this. They experience other things. They're struggling in other areas. But loneliness isn't one of them. Because Haitians live outside. They sleep inside, but they cook outside. They do their laundry outside. Can you imagine that? Like... Imagine what our homeowners association, the tough. I mean, I'm already planning on a letter, but if we, you hang a big clothesline out there and put your grill out in front and cooking out day with fire. But what that does is they're all hanging out together all day long. We live in the first culture in history that lives in our own homes by ourselves with doors that are separated from each other. This is a social experiment that has never been done in the history of mankind, and its result is loneliness. We're going to talk, uh, I've been talking with Tom this week a little bit about what it looks like, uh, the disciplines of building ourselves up. And I think that this is important stuff and we're, I was like, I was going to try to do it in one sermon and and, and he's like, there's no way that's going to happen. I'm looking at it going, yeah, that's so true. We're about to have a three hour sermon here, but 
We're going to start that in about a month. In fact, next week, uh, Lisa Childers, some of you might know Lisa. Uh, she was in a group called Zoe Girl. You can admit it. Um, <laughs> But Elisa uh, will be here next week, and she's going to be with us for uh, Wednesday nights for our youth for the entire month of October, uh, talking about a, a faith that is intellectually viable and tenable, okay? Some call it apologetics, but she is someone who literally her faith ran headlong into a crisis, and she did not shipwreck her faith on the question. She sought and did the work. So she's going to be here next Sunday talking about that and why that's important for us. And it's important uh, for us as parents, because I bet in my left arm that there are people in this room that you have the same questions your kids have, you just haven't had the guts to say it. So we're gonna have Elisa here next Sunday, and for those few weeks, we're gonna be talking about what it looks like to contend for the faith. Jude chapter one, verse three. Contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you. That's the world we're in right now that wants to resist the faith, to push back the faith, to, to bulldoze over it. What does it look like to contend it? But I would say that we can't do that unless we're in a community like this, a Jesus community. And as we build the disciplines of what it looks like, you know, I didn't get this, uh, this physique, right, without some work, right? I had to, you know what I'm saying? There were some disciplines involved. And I could help you with that. Like, when you wake up this morning, were you thinking about lunch? You gotta think of, you know what I'm saying? You can't wait till lunch. You gotta start early with it. And by dinner, you think about breakfast. So I, I can give you some tips on, but there's disciplines involved that got me to where I am. There's disciplines in our walk with the Lord that get us to where we need to be. And that's what we're, we are gonna talk about those things. But today, I'm looking at this biblical community, and I see in this, these four things in this, and we're just gonna literally do a flyover of it, but I'm hoping that it will wake up something inside of you in a way that is deep and profound, that there is a community that if you're feeling a little bit of loneliness, if you're feeling disconnected, you are not alone in that feeling, that it is a part of our culture, and I hope that as a church, as Jesus people, that we will rage against this in the same way we've raged against the sexual revolution, in the same way that we've raged against other things in our culture that have done harm to us, that we rage against this of us being separated and divided. And he says here in this Jesus community that there, there's four things that you can look at, that how you treat uh, your leaders or your workers, uh, how do you treat each other, how you treat the spirit, and how Jesus treats you. That's the four things we're gonna fly over in the few minutes that we have. That how you treat the workers that are around you is a mark of what it means to be in a Jesus community. When you look at the soldiers, what do they treat the folks that are in the kitchen? They treat the, the leaders, the, they treat them with respect, right? And, with, and that's he's saying, don't kiss up to them, just acknowledge it. Because when you've got a Jesus community, he says to, to acknowledge those, uh, in verse 12, those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. In a group of people that organically comes together, people will naturally rise up in the gifts that they have and deploy in the way that God has wired and gifted them. We went to, um, we went to the U2 show in Kansas City this week. Now, we went with David Christopher to the U2 show. Okay, and let me tell you, when you go to a David Christopher U2 show, you're going to the show, because we got floor seats, okay? And David is planning this and strategizing this. You get on the floor, but you could be way back, or you could be right where, he sent me a picture from the London show where he could have literally untied Bono's shoe, he was so close. And that's where we're going. Now, you don't get there just by showing up, 
you have to have a plan. So David uh, has us there at 5 a.m. Um, at, the, at the football stadium because he's done the research and done the work. And we get there, and there's a dude with a beard that I have envied for, since we left. It's thick and lustrous. And he had a clipboard, and he's putting us all in line. So we get there. The reason is we got to get there. Make sure I'm explaining this right. Because the, the floor is general admission, and to keep it looking like a Black Friday at Walmart trying to get TVs and people killing each other, you want some sort of organization. So we get there, and you get there. Uh, we wrote a number on our wrist, so the number and the order you get there is the number with which that you uh, will now be in line and be let in 100 at a time. So you get a wristband and a big magic marker and the dude with the clipboard and the beard, and then he had some, uh, some minions that were there. It took me a little while to figure this out that Beard Guy had a number one on his hand. He realized, oh, he doesn't work here. Like, he doesn't work for the stadium. He's just a guy <laughs> that loves you too and wants the organization. And this happens at every show around the country that you two fans come together and they've created their own system that the stadium says, oh, yeah, we'll let you do that. We'll work with you. We'll line you, so by three o'clock, we're lined up in lines of 100. And at one point, you finally see the guy that's in charge, and he's a, you know, he's a Chiefs guy, Kansas City Chiefs. He's got the Chiefs gut and the, the, the flip phone on the, on the belt and the, uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm from that, peri- I'm from that area, so I can say that. Um, I'm like, oh, that guy's in charge. Like, I can tell that's a guy that's in charge. And he was allowing this guy to do this so that there would be organization. It was what just naturally happened. And I was thinking about it from us. That's what happens in a church all the time. There are people whose gifts just naturally raise to the top, who they're not in, in charge, if you will, but their gifts are being deployed and it's important for us to acknowledge them because of what they're doing to make your experience go better. And in a Jesus community, we acknowledge that stuff. You know, we acknowledge that there are people like Keith Moore who does the audio. And keep in mind, TJ's back there today, but when something normally goes wrong in the sound, what's the first thing everybody does? Look to Keith. Keith takes one for the team about every week. Keith is there setting up early. Keith is there tearing down afterwards. If you've hit play on a podcast, you know that Keith is the one that edits that audio and sends it over so we can upload it. You probably didn't know that, but now you do, and it's important that we acknowledge that, that he's doing something that works for us. He's working hard among you. I I give her credit a lot, because mostly because she takes a lot of crap from us, but Amy Roberts is our bookkeeper. And that is no easy, I, I, mean, I, I believe in uh, levels of reward in heaven. I'm gonna be mowing Amy's yard for like a million years. <laughs> but she, she's working hard and you never see it, but you know what, when we needed to send checks out this week for the hurricane victims, she's on it. When I emailed her at 10 o'clock last night saying, hey, where are we in this budget right now? I kinda wanna know where we are. She's on it, she's working hard. Our worship team, they get up here and you see them on Sunday, but you know that Jeremy doesn't just show up and sing on Sunday. He's herding rabbits, trying to get everybody to show up, make sure the musicians are here, making sure everybody's on time. And, you know, doing, there's a recruiting, there's an administration process that, that starts way before the Sunday morning and starts immediately after for the next week. When Jason is singing, that wasn't the first time he sang that song this week. 
He's working on that stuff. We acknowledge that. And I literally could go around this room and see multiple people here. Chris, when you're helping out with the kids and stuff, we acknowledge that. We were talking about in the first service that Kathy Holton comes in here, you probably don't know this, every Saturday, and cleans all the toys and cleans the rooms and gets them all set up for the preschool on Sunday. Doesn't do it for your thanks, but it's good to acknowledge that stuff among us. How we treat each other, how we treat the workers that are around us is important, and how we treat each other is the next thing he says when he goes on to say that to live at peace with one another Verse 13, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, he talks about pray continually. So how we treat the workers around us is one thing, how we treat each other is another. Incredibly important how we treat each other. He lists out these things that are interesting to me. He says, hey, if, if you're idle and uh, disruptive, you need to be warned about that. Which is interesting, he, co- he combines idle and disruptive together. But if you think about it, if you've ever led anything, don't you, maybe this is just me, but the people that complain the most are the people who do the least. Let's put that there and I'm gonna go right back up here. Um, <laughs> I mean, you got nothing else to do, so you might as well throw rocks. I'd rather you just get in the trailer and help us load it to get the stuff to the hurricane. But, and for the most part, in our world, and I honestly can say this, I'm not just blowing uh, smoke up your nose, like this is a, a real thing. We have a church that is full of people uh, that, are, that treat each other well, that are not idle and not disruptive because we're too busy getting stuff done for the kingdom. But he talks about that, like if you're idle and, and disruptive, well, you need to be warned. But then he goes on to say, if, if you are... Uh, disheartened, you need to be encouraged. If, if you're weak, you need to be helped. We need to be patient with everyone. When I read these things, here's what I see. How do I know that that person who is complaining, are they, that they're doing it because they're idle? Because even though for the most part, that's the people who complain the loudest are doing the least, you know who else can complain sometimes? Someone who lashes out, someone who's hurting. Someone who's weak might just be crying out for help and it comes across as complaining. And for me to, this is what we need. By the way, it doesn't say clergy do this. It says this is each other. This is our role with each other. And the only way that I can do this well with you and you do it with me is if we know each other. This is a level of relationship that doesn't just happen on a Sunday morning sitting in stadium seating. This is a a thing that can only happen when we have gone deep with a few people. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The The Tipping Point. And Malcolm says in his research that the maximum number in any group before you stop being able to know each other well is 150. That's the most that you can do. Which means that at 150, there are going to be people in here that you know well and those that you don't know well at all. Now, do we just close the doors and lock it and say we're done? You can go up the road. They've got a really nice building, a gateway. They've got cup holders. It's not, you can, you'd love it there. Do we say we're done? Or do we say that there's another way to do this? And I think that that's what we're 
I think that's what you're seeing in our deeper groups. It's what we're encouraging you to do with each other, to go deep, even if it's not with a group here, that there is a group of people that you go deep with, that know you in a way. We were talking, um, some of the staff actually were on this YouTube trip, there's missionaries and some other, but you know, Jim Henderson told me that he spent more time talking to David Christopher on this trip than he uh, literally in the last five years combined, and that's even after going on a trip to Haiti with him. We're just, you know why? Because we're trapped in a van and some Nazi is driving and refusing to stop for gas and for bathroom stops, and so we're just trapped together. We got, I don't know who that was, but we got to keep, but they built relationships together that they wouldn't have done any other way. Something else Gladwell said, which I found to be really profound, he talked about something called transactive memory. Have you ever heard of this? Transactive memory is me storing memories in someone else because I can't remember it. I know all I know, so I have to store it in someone else. This happens every time I open a cabinet at the house and I don't know where something is. I say to Shannon, do you know where the ninja thing, whatever, and she always does. And I don't remember because I don't have to. Because she does. <laughs> Guys, when you're at the grocery store and you don't ask for the, the, the staff to help find something and instead you call your wife, it's because you are, now I don't know who else would do that, but I wouldn't do that. But, but when you do that, that's a, that's a transactive memory that says I'm storing that memory in someone else. There are things that my wife remembers about my children at childhood that I don't remember, but she does. And she'll say, oh, you remember this? Or you know that Facebook memories are both cruel and kind. Be like, oh, I totally forgot that. When my mother passed away a few years ago, there were things that she knew about me, that she knew about our childhood, that she knew about my family history, that I'll never know because it died with her in her memory. I stored them in her memory. When someone dies that's close to you and you say, I feel like a part of me is gone with them, it's because they have. The relationship of transactive memory is something that in a church setting can't happen in a group of 500 people. C.S. Lewis used to be in a group called the Inklings. The Inklings was a group of authors that met together regularly. A, a member of that group was uh, Tolkien. There was another member, uh, his name was Charles Williams. I have no idea what he wrote. And Ryan, I think there's actually a quote on there that if you can find it, I'd love to post it. Because I'm going to read to you. This is what, when Charles died, he was one of their friends. This is what he said about his death. In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. And now that Charles is dead, I'll never again see Ronald, speaking of Tolkien, reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him quote to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition with each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. 
What that means is that there are ways that you view and experience Jesus that I can't experience, and so I see Jesus through your eyes. When I see the Jesus that Phyllis sees, I see Jesus as this loving and redemptive and kind Jesus. It's different than the way that I see Jesus. That together I get to see Jesus in a way with you that you don't, you don't, so together we see Jesus in this profound way. In the same way that we see each other, it's all the more true and profound in the way that we see Jesus through each other. That without a group, this idea that I, I'm a spiritual but I don't go to church or I'm not part of a church is at best an incomplete journey with Jesus. Going with Deidre to North Africa, I saw Jesus through the eyes of, of Deidre and, and of someone who's overcome great uh, obstacles in her own life and who's fought for the health of her children and seeing her now in this new world with a new group of people that Jesus is breaking her heart for, I saw the Muslim people in a way that I wouldn't have seen them had I have not been beside Deidre on that journey. We need each other to see Jesus wholly and completely. So not only is it how that we treat the workers, how we treat each other, but how do we treat the spirit? He says in verse 19, don't quench the spirit. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. We live in a world where, the internet especially, where we kind of uh, make fun of, mock, and uh, reject all prophecies out of hat, and what he's saying is don't reject it and don't stare at it with contempt. Test it, make sure it's cool, make sure, you know, September 23rd, uh, we can <laughs> test that. Two reasons, Matthew 24, number one, and number two, quote, Christian numerologists. Like, we can say that's probably not scripture, right? Like, we can say that that's, we could test it, but not to mock it, not to scorn it, and it, deeper than that, much deeper than that. Quenching the spirit, if the spirit says to you to go and to pray for someone during worship, do you quench it because of your fear? But what if it's not the Lord? Now think about that for just a second. What if it wasn't? What's the worst that could happen? We just prayed with somebody. Problem solved. But what is the spirit leading you to do? Are you quenching it or are you moving it? And in a Jesus community, we need each other to treat each other well and in peace and to know each other in a way so that I, I know if you're weak or if I know you need admonished or I know and I've earned the right to be heard. I'm in a community where I'm acknowledging those that are working hard among you. And I'm in a community where I'm open to what the Spirit is leading us to do. We have a list that has to get done. We have this song and this, but what if the Spirit interrupts it? Do we quench it or do we say, throw the list away? don't quench the spirit. And the last thing that he says that I think is he talks about not only how you treat the spirit, the only way we can do all of this is because of how Jesus uh, treats us. He says that it, 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 those last few verses that the God of peace sanctify you through and through and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless our Lord Jesus, and I love this, and the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I can't do any of these other three without what he has done for me. And he gives us such a great model of how we treat each other. I mean, he was in close proximity with these disciples. He had 12 of them. There's only, when he first started, there's only like 30 of them. He like literally elected half of them as the leaders, right? 
he was building a model for what a community would look like. And in that community, they got along some days, and other days they didn't. If you're Jesus, wouldn't you have just thought, man, at some point, Peter, could you just not get your head screwed on straight? Are you seriously? <laughs> Haven't we talked about this and you just cut that guy's ear off seriously? But it's not what he did with Peter because he knew Peter and he knew Peter wasn't idle and he didn't need to be warned. Peter was weak and he was hurting and he needed somebody to be patient and to be long-suffering with him. Jesus, after he resurrected, Peter blew it big time. And Peter did what a lot of us would do, what I would probably do. I'm like, well, (laughs) that's, that's embarrassing. I shot my mouth off. I'll never deny you. I'll never... Rooster crows, how humiliating, right? The guy that drew the sword, I'll die for you, is now cowering. And what did Peter do? He did what a lot of us would do. He went back to his old life and said, I'm done now. It's over for me. And what did Jesus do? He set such a great example for what we did. He went and found him. He didn't play some weirdo game. Well, well, if Peter wanted, he'd call me. (laughs) He went and found him. Wrist rejection, by the way. And Peter, he did that forced Gump moment. He's in the boat fishing, jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. <laughs> fishing, and what is P- Jesus is on the shore. This is John 21. He's standing on the shore, and Jesus is cooking what? Fish. The very thing, the very thing that Peter was looking for, Jesus had all along. And it was in that moment that he said to Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. Remember this story? And he says it again, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, seriously, man, you're just sticking it to me. That's what it feels like, right? And then a third time, do you love me? He's like, Lord, you know I do. I don't know what else to say. I'm hum- Why are you humiliating me? You know, It's that sort of feeling. But when you understand the language, because he's saying to Peter, do you love me agape love? It'd be like me saying to Shannon on our wedding day, I love you meaning I love you, you know, romantic love, and she says back, yeah, I love French fries, and I love you. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) That's not it. He's saying, do you agape love me? And Peter's saying, I friend love you. And what I love about what Jesus did, he wasn't, I don't believe that he was doing this to Peter to try to humiliate him. He was allowing Peter for the first time, maybe in his life, to be honest with him. Jesus, this is all I got. This is it. I, I, I want to, like I, I lied, <laughs> said I love God, I loved you, but this is all I've got. And Jesus, it was like he said, okay, I can work with this. I can work with that. And Jesus allows us to be honest with him him to be honest with us, it's such, such a great example for us of just saying, look, this is who I am, the self-awareness of where I stand, and Jesus can start with that and work with that. That is how Jesus treats us. This is of critical importance to us because in our world, in this room, are people who desperately need someone to be patient with them desperately need someone to be long-suffering. 
desperately need you to not put them through to voicemail because it's broken, the, the relationship is broken. It's, it's beyond their control and they need somebody in a community that they can count on and depend on. And your culture says, you're too busy for that. And I'm full disclosure, I'm looking at the same culture you're looking at and I'm not 100% sure how we rage against this because you're going to go to work tomorrow, you've got kids in sports, you've got kids in school, You've got your neighborhood you know, Halloween party. You've got, there's stuff. And so at some point, there's too much. And so we're floating and spreading ourselves so thin that we never have the time actually to go deep in a way so that if you see me in this situation, you know me well enough to know that, you know what, Darren is just being a jerk. I need to warn him. Or I know Darren, and that's not, he really needs me just to listen right now. And the only way that happens is with us making the time for each other. In our deeper groups, we're, we're, we're trying, we're inviting you into those journeys, but the truth is, is this, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them. I can't make anybody do anything. Jesus won't make you do anything, because that's not a community, that's called a prison. He's offering this invitation to live in a way that is literally for your best interests, for your good, and for his glory. For us to be able to say that as a community, I've been reading a book called The Benedict Option. Has anyone heard of this? A couple of them. Fascinating. Because he's basically, his premise is this is not the first time that we've lived in a community and in a culture that is, uh, that is crushing Christianity and trying to uh, squish us, but that was right after Rome fell. There was a guy named Benedict who instead of trying to win the culture war, he said, we're gonna build an ark and we're gonna create communities that the center has not held in our society. But Jesus is holding and us having Jesus communities is the way that we move into the future. Your kids are depending on us to get this right. Our grandkids someday are depending on us to get this right. If Jesus tarries, Maybe he won't, maybe he'll come back this afternoon. But if he tarries, you owe it to yourself, you owe it for your own health, for your own life, for your own emotional well-being to fight and rage against this culture. And maybe today the only thing you can do is just start to pray and say, Lord, what, what can I begin to cut out so that I have room, the breathing room we've talked about, to engage in a, in a community somewhere and maybe the first one didn't really take. I was talking to a guy at first service. He's like, yeah, I mean, I tried this small group thing, but it wasn't really working, so I'm trying another one. Good, keep trying. Keep going deep. <laughs> when I was growing up, we were in church every time the door was open, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night men's meeting, Friday night prayer, whatever. And we'd talk about that like, oh man, that, that was bad. And in truth, it was exhausting and you could burn yourself out, but there was something from that that we miss in this society right now. There are people in that little church in Nebraska that I in no other circumstance and no other place would I have hung out with them or they with me. But we were forced into a room together. And to this day, there are some friends in that group that if I needed something, I could call them right now and I know they'd be there. I'm imagining that for our society. And we need the Holy Spirit to imagine it with us because we're gonna need to be creative. We're gonna need to have Benedicts rise up to gatherings and things and prayers and some of it's already happening, I love it. I, I know in this room there's, there's women's groups meeting and there's things that are happening already but let's, 
Let's stand to our feet. I know it's getting late. I've talked your ears off, but I, I want you to pray and ask where the Lord would guide you to, to allow conduit to become that kind of a community. You know, we're in a building that has put a governor on us. You know, like when you're driving a U-Haul uh, truck, you can only go 65 because it won't go any faster. This building is a governor for us. There's no danger of us growing out of control and freakishly large, or, but there is a danger of us growing isolated and alone and literally missing the entire point of why Jesus has called us together. Please be here next week for Elisa. Please know that we are gonna talk about some stuff about what it really looks like just to have some disciplines in your life to build yourself up spiritually. But for today, imagine what it would be like to be the one in your neighborhood who isn't lonely. To create something that's so compelling that others want to be a part of it. To create something that looks a lot like Acts chapter two. Jesus, would you give us wisdom and insight? I'm thankful for the community that we already have. And Lord, I'm thankful that you want us to go deeper. Not as a burden to us or some sort of guilt trip, but you want it because it's good for us. Science is just proving what you already knew, that you created us to need each other. Lord, would you give us common purpose to to unite around like soldiers who are united around a purpose. Lord, please let it not require some sort of tragic event or war ourselves to cause us to want to drive together. Let's get the courage, give us the courage, allow us to build the courage to go deep with each other without needing some sort of tragic event. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being so kind and so good to us and for modeling of how we should treat each other by how you treat us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.